in one of the great, well, in, in the greatest scene of Western literature, the enraged warrior Achilles, unbeaten, unbeatable, stands outside his tent on the beach at Troy while three ambassadors beg him to rejoin the battle. And Achilles, unmoved by their appeals and their tears, answers, I hate that man like the very gates of death who says one thing but hides another in his heart, so I'll say it straight. Will Agamemnon win me over? Not for all the world. Not now that he has torn my honor from my hands, he says. It's a shockingly powerful passage and a heart-wrenching passage, but also a little confusing to us moderns because we tend to ask ourselves questions like, how can anyone steal someone else's honor? How do you steal honor? Well, we were talking about this during lunch. Scholars have written volumes on this topic, but the long and short of it is this. The Greeks of the Bronze Age measured their honor in stuff and in reputation. Time and kleos were the words in Greek. Sometimes you hear it translated honor and glory. Time was as much, how much stuff you had. And the more of it you had, the more honor. It was measurable. And if someone took your stuff, they took your honor. If someone stole a Greek hero's cow, they stole one cow's worth of honor. Uh, similarly, kleos, or glory, was determined by popular opinion. So if someone insulted a Greek warrior in public, he literally damaged that man's honor. His glory, sorry. So when Agamemnon, the general of the Greeks, steals Achilles' slave, he literally steals one slave worth of honor. And Achilles never gets over it. Because honor in their world is a zero-sum game. The more of it you have, the less of it I have. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because I think Achilles has begun to make a comeback. I think as a culture, we've begun once more to measure our honor in material external things, and our, our kids have begun to feel the stress of it. Um, of course, my purpose here is not to whine about how lousy the world has become, but to propose some solutions. And I offer those solutions in the form of four stories. Five people, five saints, four stories. And as I move from one story to the next, I want you to keep Homer's invincible hero, Achilles, in the back of your mind. All right? So saint, failure number one, failure saint number one on the list, by far, John the Baptist. All right? He ate bugs. I could stop there, really. And, and I think I would have made a pretty good point. But more, just as importantly, he wore uncomfortable, unattractive, homemade clothes. He died young and was, by his own admission, unworthy to fasten the sandals of the man who came after him. And when his own followers decided to abandon him, he, he actually encouraged them. He says, well, I must decrease so he can increase. What, what a sad thing to say. Can you imagine any politician, movie star, superhero, CEO, or even any of our favorite televangelists, present company excluded, saying, 
something like that today. I must fail so Hillary can succeed, right? Or I must fail so, so my, my, anyway. Like most of the prophets, John was murdered by the very people he was trying to help. Furthermore, he was preparing them for a man they would eventually reject, humiliate, and execute. And yet, Jesus himself said of this catastrophic failure that he was the greatest man born of woman. He's one of the few saints in the Roman calendar who has two feast days devoted to him, exclusively to him. One, his birth. The other, ironically, his beheading. Story number two, Saints Simon and Jude. Here are two men who own nothing and about whom we know very little. Saint Jude was confused with Judas so many times that he eventually became the patron of lost causes. What's more, the gospel writers themselves couldn't seem to keep his name straight. John calls him Judas, but not the Iscariot. Luke calls him Jude, the brother of James, and Matthew calls him Thaddeus. <laughs> Nothing is said about him in any of the Gospels except that he asks one question, not a very good one. He says, John 14, 22, Lord, what's this? <laughs> That's it for Jude. That is his contribution. There's a New Testament letter that bears his name, but most people agree that someone else probably wrote it for him. We know even less about Simon. Mostly he goes by not Simon Peter. Luke calls him Simon the Zealot. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite. Some people think maybe he was Simon's older brother. I don't know how they had the same, same name. Anyway, he, whatever the case, he was known as not him. That's it for Simon and Jude. They even have to share a feast day. John the Baptist gets two. And yet, they were chosen by Jesus himself to lead his church. They're one of the 12, two of the 12, well, see, two of the 12 originals. All right, story number three. I was gonna say he's my favorite, but I think Takayama Yukon is my favorite. No. Olaf, St. Olaf, king of Norway. He was a, this is off script, but he was, he was a Viking who converted to Christianity and then was immediately conquered by his neighbors because apparently being a Viking and being a Catholic are not particularly compatible. So St. Edward the Confessor, number three. St. Edward the Confessor. Now here, finally, we come upon a change of pace. Edward, a king. By the standards of the time, obscenely rich, singularly influential. However, he is widely considered the worst politician in the history of Britain. King Edward, son of Ethelred the Unready, an unauspicious beginning if ever there was one, was a weak, impotent, timid, and famously ugly man. In worldly terms, a complete disappointment. During the course of his reign, Edward lost all his money. And by that, I mean all of England's money. Without accumulating any political power. In fact, he allowed himself to be used as a puppet by 
of all people, his in-laws. Then, when they were done with him, a pack of foreign conmen took over. Furthermore, despite his marriage to an intelligent and beautiful woman, he never managed to produce an heir, which is the one thing even an incompetent monarch can usually pull off. Some claim that this was his choice because he secretly desired to be a monk. Others, with some evidence, claim that his wife just could not force herself to sleep with him. Indeed, King Edward the Confessor left to history a reputation for weakness, indecision, and financial incompetence. And yet, he is England's most popular saint. He built the world's greatest abbey at Westminster, and over a million people come to visit his tomb every year. Story number four is one of ours, a local, local girl, Rose Philippine Duchenne. I'll just, I'll read you a paragraph from her biography. This is by Marion T. Horvat, if you ever, if you want to look it up. The first order she entered closed. She did not feel realized in the second institution until she came to America to convert the Indians. Then, instead of carrying out this long-desired mission, she was ordered to teach girls and found convents. The work was more difficult because she never learned to speak English. She founded one convent that failed, then another that foundered. The girls were, in her words, ungrateful and worldly, and the sisters chafed under her governance and wanted to relax the rule. When she finally was permitted to go to work in an Indian mission, she was already 72 years old, too old to work or learn the native language. But after, one, only, after only one year, she was denied even that great consolation. She was ordered to leave the Indian mission and return to Florissant, Missouri. I've been to Florissant. It's awful. And that's where she died, having converted exactly one Indian who apostatized three months later. And yet, she was utterly faithful to her call as a missionary. And a century after her death, when the Jesuits finally did the job right, the Potawatomi Indians still remembered her as, uh-huh, that woman who prayed, right? Saints like these would have baffled Achilles. Simon and Jude died without Timae or Cleos. Edward squandered his political influence. John the Baptist had his head cut off. Rose Philippine Duchenne died penniless and disappointed. No honor or glory here, not by ancient Greek standards. In fact, these folks come up pretty short by our modern standards as well. You kind of have to wonder at the church's logic when it holds up people like this as role models. And yet, that is the logic of the cross. A logic which redefines success and turns human wisdom on its head. In the light of the cross, failure becomes promise and weakness becomes strength. And the meek and the humble inherit the earth. This is why Nietzsche 
ridiculed Christianity as a religion of the weak. We come from a long line of failures. Sometimes we actually seem to take pride in that. Mother Teresa, well, you all know, she was asked if she could possibly hope to succeed in India where poverty was so overwhelming. Her answer, God does not expect us to be successful. He expects us to be faithful. This quotation has come to mean a lot to me in my work, especially in my work in our high school, because in addition to my teaching and praying, I also coach this rugby team, which has not had a winning season in over 10 years. In fact, we only broke even once. We were four and four, and that year my players tore down the goalposts because it marked the end of a 20-year losing streak. Uh, there's a footnote here. Three years ago, we went to state because they replaced the head rugby coach. That was me. <laughs> now, some might argue that a losing streak of that magnitude may have had something to do with my coaching. I prefer to look at it in biblical terms. <laughs> Thank you, yes. You see, God has a special affection for losers. We look at all the losers, for example, in this long, baffling history of our salvation, starting with the Israelites themselves, whose finest king seemed to have a thing for other men's wives, and continuing right through the age of the apostles, whose first unanimous decision was to run away, uh, to our own age and people like St. Philippine Duchenne. Right? Um, what were we? You know, Father Mark and I were talking about, what were we? The Israelites, yeah, here, here, here they are. We, we were just talking about this in the car. Here the Israelites are. They've, they've, they've had all the, the God has worked the, most, the greatest, most magnificent miracles in the history of the world. The 12, to say nothing of the 12 plagues, pillars of fire, pillars of smoke, parting the Red Sea, right? And then they complain about the food. Yeah, enough said about that. When it comes to losing, I, can, I sometimes convince myself that it is a sign of God's special affection for my team. For every failure reminds us that our beauty, our value, our integrity lie not in our accomplishments, but simply in our existence as sons and daughters of God. That said, I need to make one thing clear. Failure is bad. Like all forms of suffering, it is a consequence of original sin. And it is natural, even wise, to avoid failure whenever possible. But just as there is a tendency to romanticize suffering as though it were a thing to be sought out, or worse yet, enjoyed, so there can be a tendency to romanticize failure as though it were just an alternative form of success. Like suffering, however, failure can be transfigured, enriched, elevated in the light of the cross, which was, in its unique way, the fusion of humanity's greatest failure with its greatest victory. So just as it was Christ's vocation to die on the cross, so we may be called by God to fail from time to time. In fact, I think it's fair to say that we will all inevitably be fail, called to fail 
on some level. I think God sometimes calls us specifically to fail. He says, I've got a job for you to do. I've got a job for you. Well, no, he says, I've got a job for you not to do, but I want you to try to do it anyway. But the good news with a capital G and a capital N is that if we can unite that failure with Christ's suffering, it transforms into a tremendous good. Not just an opportunity to grow, but a participation in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. Secondly, I'd like to distinguish between failing and being a failure. A parallel can be drawn, I think, between sinning and being a sinner. When we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, we do not mean by that to define ourselves by our sins. We are sinners, but our identity is in Christ. Martin Luther used the analogy of a dunghill covered by snow to illustrate his theology of humans, humanity's utter depravity. We're all basically manure, he said. But Jesus hides this from God's from God's view beneath the snow of his grace. We are snow-covered manure. And that's dead wrong. It's wrong because it does not acknowledge the fundamental goodness of God's creation. Our identity, in other words, is in our goodness, not in our sinfulness. We may fail in our endeavors, but we are not failures at heart. Not while we remain united to Jesus and his church, which is why we can rejoice even when the hour looks darkest. <laughs> I told you about my friend who said, when you're happy, you're happy. When you're, failure, when you're miserable, then you're really happy. Well, that's true. There is something really beautiful about the way Christianity can transform suffering into joy, which is why we look to saints like Edward and Philippine for inspiration. And why it is such a disappointment to hear people recite platitudes like, you can do anything so long as you put your mind to it. It's just not true. I'll never be a brain surgeon. No one is, an, is omnipotent but God. And just once, just once, I'd like to hear a valedictorian say to his class, you're all going to fail. You will all inevitably have your hearts broken, experience loneliness, miss a major opportunity, lose a game, lose a job, lose some money, be abandoned and ridiculed, be humiliated, scorned. You are destined for failure. And that is very, very sad. But it's also okay. Because your God, your God, had his heart broken and was ridiculed by his friends. Your God was humiliated and scorned and abandoned. And that means that your dignity is not bound up with your success. You are a child of God. You have been divinized. And in the end, when you lie on your deathbed, as we all inevitably do, without trophies or diplomas or accolades or even your bodily health to, to comfort you. All that will matter is your existence as a child of God, and it will be enough. 
It'll be more than enough. It'll be everything. Amen. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.